Football MX Network production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. A new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires, Fly Racing, Blends All Racing Motor Oil, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, 612 Suspension, Fast Foundry, and Pro Glow. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Industry Seating. My name is Jason Thomas. I am your host. A little off-season podcast today. I'm going to keep these email questions going. We'll, uh, we'll give away a set of Pirelli tires today to one of the, the questions that were submitted. Just a reminder, you can submit questions to my personal email at jason36 at aol.com. You can also direct message me questions at jason66thomas on my personal Instagram or the industry seating podcast, Instagram as well. And I'm just going to do a few of these a week. So we have content over the next couple of months. Uh, like I said, this week, I'm going to give away a set of Pirelli tires next week. I'm going to give away a formula CC helmet. So that is the carbon composite version of the formula helmet that we have marketed and taught everyone about for the last couple of years. So please get your questions in for that. And we will continue to give away prizes each week over the next couple of months, working through that with our show sponsors. And speaking of those, I want to thank Pirelli Tires. I want to thank Blenzall. I want to thank Works Connection. I want to thank Fast Foundry. I want to thank Plum Creek Funding. I want to thank Risk Racing. I want to thank Premier Vapor Blasting, 612 Suspension, and Pro Glow. Thank you to all those sponsors for being on board. And I, I know there's going to be a a lack of content, let's say, from all the media over the next few months, because really there's there's not much out there. You know, there's MXGP, but Supercross-wise, we just have this hiatus, which is weird because we had such a long season. You know, this this season was by far the longest in recent memory. I mean, maybe going back to 70s or 80s that I wasn't around for as far as paying attention, we went this long, but we kind of had things to carry us through. Not so much now. Uh, hopefully we'll get, you know, some news and silly season going on. There still are plenty of riders that need to find homes. So that will give us some, uh, some content too. guys like Mookie and some other guys need to, uh, need to get their deals locked in. So we'll have that dynamic to go over, but mostly I want to get to the things that are on all of your minds. What are you wondering about? And I appreciate all of the, the questions this week and without further ado, let's jump into it. So first question Bradley Wheeler asks, if MXGP returns to the U.S. in 2021, what track would you love to see them go to? What track do you think that you could convince the AMA riders to actually race and attend? It's a good question, and I don't know that MXGP is going to come back to the U.S. I personally would say it's unlikely because it hasn't really been successful on a on a large level. You know, for USGP, you want just massive turnout and the, the promoter to make money with attendance and MXGP to make money because of their, you know, involvement there. And it it really needs to be a hit and he's people needs to come out in droves for that event to be successful because it's so expensive to put on, you know, the teams have such a huge expense on the front end for travel. That that's really the biggest part, right? Creating up all those bikes and parts and flights for all those crews. You think about each team, you know, 10 people or more riders and families. And there's just so much expense on everywhere you turn rental cars and just all of it. Think about it. They have literally nothing and they have to go out and pay for everything. And, and the flyaways are no different, right? Whether they go to China or Thailand or Argentina, the USA, it's kind of all the same. But the difference is in those other venues, right? If they go to Argentina or they go to Indonesia, right? Indonesia is a great example. 
China, another great example. Those countries are paying a, a premium on the front end. They are being subsidized by the, the government in most cases to help offset those costs. You know, that whether it's the tourism department or whatever faction of the government is coming in with a large check and paying to the, the organizing body to cover those expenses. It's a, a nationalized product. Now we know in the USA that doesn't happen. That that's not a part of our our program. The USGP has to be. It kind of has to stand on its own two feet, right? And and I think that you know in the past it was Ustream and now it's in front. I think they were willing to invest to try to develop a larger U.S. market and a, a bigger American fan base. But at some point, that has to show returns. They can't just keep dumping money into a project that's failing. And I, I think that last one they had in Florida, you know, at WW Ranch, I just, I think with the weather they had, you know, it was standing water everywhere, it was a million degrees because it was Labor Day. I think they were just like, all right, we're, we're done with this. We're, we're out. You know, the only saving grace there is I think Motocross of Nations was a huge success. So I think that's coming back sooner rather than later. I don't have any inside info. I'm not, you know, holding out on you guys, but you just look at the numbers and you look at how successful Redbud was in 2018, minus the weather, minus all that. It, it did not dampen, <clears throat> did not dampen the attendance. So that's going to happen again very soon. And I think that is the silver lining to this whole situation is that we're getting another motocross of nations at a track like that. My vote would be red, but if I had to say what's the most likely scenario, because it was such a home run. And I think there is an appetite for that to happen again. And hopefully the weather cooperates this time. And if you were there, if you happen to be one of the lucky people, I guess, lucky, uh, dealing with that weather all weekend, you know, how amazing it was, you know, how big the turnout was and you know, the potential, if the weather cooperates, what that weekend could be. And I think we're going to get that again. So we'll, we'll see, we'll wait on news for that. But I think for Brad, your, your basic question was on MXGP turning into a USGP, what track I think red Bud is the most likely. I just don't think it's going to be a USGP. I think it's going to be motocross the nations and on the USGP front. Good luck. I just don't see, I don't see that happening because I think financially it's been a fail. And I hate to use the word failure that has such a negative connotation, but I think financially it has been a failure and it's hard to look at it any other way. Executing the event has been successful. Great racing. You know, we saw that battle with Tomac and Cairoli and Hurlings and all those guys were going at it. We saw RJ Hampshire win the MX2 class. There were, there was a lot to like as far as the racing side, but on a dollars and cents side, it has to make sense for both in front and for the promoter on our side, because there is a big cost up front. I can't imagine that was a financially successful event, whether it was at WW ranch or going back to any of the, the rounds like Glen Helen. I remember looking back, you know, there 2014, 2015, we were at Glen Helen for these USGPs and they were supposedly, I wasn't there, but it sounded like it was kind of a ghost town as far as turnout. That's not a recipe for making money as we know, right? They're, they are dependent on the, you know, the money at the gate, the entry for all those spectators. And if you don't get that, it's really hard to, to come out on the, on the plus side. So good question. Uh, just look for motocross nations to be the answer to that. As far as the riders, I didn't really touch on that. The rider side, I don't think it's really a track that's going to make the difference. I think that's almost irrelevant, maybe a small percentage. It's more the schedule and the timing because when they come over is, is almost always after the U S series is done. I, I don't think they would come during the series. And once the Lucas Oil Pro Motocross series is done, those riders are done with outdoors. Unless you are on a motocross of nations team, there's almost zero chance that you are coming over and not coming over, excuse me. There's almost zero chance that you are going to jump into another outdoor race. Once the series is over, they want time off. Their focus starts shifting back to supercross. They might be changing teams. There's just so many things that would negate any chance of them doing that. And we have seen those guys ride some like Cooper Webb road, Glen Helen, when it was here, you'll get some guys, but I, 
I don't think you're going to get some massive turnout for a USGP. I just don't think that's likely for a myriad of reasons. So um, the question was specifically about which track would incentivize those guys to come out. I don't really think it's a, it's so much about the track. Honestly, Glen Helen or Paula might be the best chance just because they would all be local to it and it would be easy to execute and the teams would not have some big expense. So maybe that's, maybe that's the most likely answer is any track in Southern California where the teams could justify just driving the truck over and they don't have all of this extra travel expense and, and, um, you know, overhead that an event say at Unadilla or at, um, Millville or wherever, right. Just pick a track. There's an incredible amount of extra expense that they don't budget for. And that scenario that would make that happening very unlikely. So good question. Appreciate it, Brad. And uh, again, Motocross Nations is your answer. Zach asks, in your opinion, does Dylan Ferranda's success in the 250 class translate to the 450? Zach has a Yamaha, but he doesn't, he's not as much of a believer in the 450 as the 250. And I think that's fair. If you look at just, just on the surface, success wise, it's hard to really disagree with that. You look at, you know, Monster Star Yamaha and they win seemingly everything. You can see the power advantage that that bike has. You see every rider clamoring to get onto that team. It's pretty easy to figure out why that's going on, right? They have a competitive edge right now. The 450, the power is not as critical of an aspect. Um, and then, you know, we know the well-documented issues that the, the Yamaha 450 has had just being adaptable to every scenario, right? Justin Barsha was pretty vocal this year with basically sharing that on a hard pack track where he wasn't able to utilize the power, the bike is very difficult to be competitive on. And it's, I think it just becomes average, right? And he really struggled. If you look at his results at a track like Atlanta or any, any track with, with ample traction, Daytona, Atlanta, any of those would fit. And then you look at his results from say Salt Lake you could see the the huge gap. And that's really what he was talking about is, you know, it wasn't a week-to-week thing where it was like, okay, the bike's going to be great, and it's still going to be great next week no matter where we go. It was really tough for him to stay consistent because if he was at a track where the bike worked, he could be in the mix for a podium. If he was at a track where the bike didn't work, he was going to be battling just to try to stay in the inside the top 10. And I think, you know, there are a lot of opinions out there. A guy like Steve Mathis in the past has always kind of, you know, shaken his head at comments like that because, you know, he, and he's not wrong saying that all the bikes are really good and you just have to be able to adapt and blah, blah, blah. But it's really difficult when you look at Justin Barsh's results and you see his results moving all over the map. It's hard not to put some sort of, you know, say that that those comments hold water because they are, you know, the there's proof there. Now, I guess you could also say, well, he's just got to find ways to overcome that. And and that's not a terrible take. I, I don't disagree with that. I think if you looked at riders like Carmichael or James Stewart or whoever, right, the legends of the sport, they would have probably found ways to overcome that. But if you're not one of the all-time greats, I think you are subject to uh, motorcycle tendencies and strengths and weaknesses and your results can vary. And, and I dealt with that in my own career. My, you know, every motorcycle I raced had situations that it worked really well on and others that it didn't. Uh, so it'll be interesting to watch on Fernandez. I don't have just a black and white answer for you. I don't think that Fernandez is going to be as good on the 450 as he was on the 250. I, I you know, in, on the surface of the question that that's not really even possible, right? He was the best 250 rider. I don't think he's going to be the best 450 rider. That does not mean he's not going to be in the mix for wins and podiums because I think he will. But also remember the level of competition that he's got to jump into. Now, what I want to watch for, and and Zach mentions this in his question, is will Dylan fall into the same trap that Webb, Barsha, and Plessinger did where they really struggled with with the bike where there was no struggle on the 250? And that'll be interesting. You know, one aspect of that is that a French rider like Ferrandis, they seem to have a lot more uh, finesse with the motorcycle, and that may help him. You know, his ability to work the bike and these technical skills that a lot of French riders have, 
like a Marvin Muskan, you just watch them and they have so much bike skill and they're able to finagle the bike into where they want it. Maybe that helps Ferrandis or maybe it hurts them. I don't, I don't know, but that's one, one unique aspect for Ferrandis versus, you know, Barsha is kind of a hammerhead, right? He just wants to force everything in his submission, whether it's the motorcycle or other riders or the track or whatever, he's just going to ride the bike and other, his competition so hard that they have to submit. That works on a track like Atlanta, where you have all this traction, you can just grab a handful. But if you're on a track where the traction's at a premium and you have to be really gentle with the, the throttle and you're constantly battling traction, that doesn't work. Uh, I think that does work for Ferrandis. I think he is able to ride that way. And that that's just a, a product of the conditions they grow up riding on, you know, South of France, I've, I've been there. I practiced down there. It's, it's really difficult. It's rocky. It's hard packed. There's no water. There is no track prep really to speak of at all. So these guys have to adapt ways to go fast in conditions like that. And that's something they learned in their youth, right? That, that was just a necessary skill they had to develop. And they brought that with them to the professional ranks and it, it serves them well in certain conditions on a track like Salt Lake or, or, you know, let's go to a standard Anaheim, not the tacky Anaheim we saw this year, but a normal Anaheim where it's slippery and hard pack and icy, those conditions suit them well in those situations. So just something in, in one unique aspect to Dylan Ferrandis where maybe he can be the outlier to the uh, the same scenario that these other guys have faced on that Yamaha 450. So appreciate it, Zach. Good question there. This question comes from Michael, and I'm not even going to pretend to be able to uh, pronounce your last name. There's a lot of a lot of letters happening in your last name, and I'm not even sure how they work consecutively. But uh, longtime listener, thanks, and, and I appreciate listening to both Steve's shows and mine. Uh, he is almost six years old and he grew up racing in Michigan, you know, seventies, eighties, all kinds of riders back then. And if you go back that that's fair, you go back and look at racing in the seventies and eighties. And there were significantly more riders at local races than now. I think it was just a much more cost-effective sport to get into. Bikes were cheap. You know, most families could afford to buy their child a, a dirt bike. It was kind of the go-to for a lot of people. And that's kind of changed it's really expensive now comparatively. And a lot of parents are just like, well, yeah, we can't afford to get into that sport. Look how expensive it is. $10,000 motorcycle, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars over the course of the year spent to go racing. So that definitely has changed. He's asking, uh, Michael's asking about horsepower jumps, right? So a a super mini back then was in the low twenties, low twenties on horsepower. I, I remember from my own experience, I remember uh, I think Shea Bentley had a super mini and it was around 28 horsepower and that would have been like mid nineties. So like Carmichael's bike would have been the same. And that was like really fast. We were all like, Oh my gosh, that's so fast. I don't know what they are now, but 125s were kind of in that same range. Um, high twenties, low thirties. And that's, that's mid nineties. Right. And they got significantly better than that quickly. I remember 125s pushing mid 30s to high 30s, like when I was racing pro, right before the switch to the 250s, and then 250Fs being uh, starting high 30s when they came out, going to low 40s, high 40s, and now they're in the low 50s, which is just think about that progression as far as uh, as engines. I think the last time I heard about a like a Monster Star Yamaha, they were low to mid 50s on horsepower, which is insane and you but you see it you see it on the track those guys whole shot every time they can jump jumps that other riders can't and that's because of of the torque and and the uh the horsepower advantage they have now specifically his question is going from a super mini to a factory 250f for which is a lot of what these kids do you know they've they're kind of bypassing the 125 is that jump too much is going from a super mini in the twenties and thirty, maybe they're getting thirty horsepower out of them now. I'm not sure. Two fifty horsepower is that jump causing issues? Is it causing problems? Is it too big of a jump? And I'm gonna say no because I I think what in most cases they're doing is they give them a stock a stock two VDF at first, right? They're they're not going from their super mini to a full blown factory two VDF right away. That that's not really the scenario. So for example, if a rider is going to go from 
riding a Super Mini at Loretta's to racing a 250F the next year. He would probably make that shift sometime after Loretta's, and he would get a 250F. He he may get a 125 too, but if he's not, if they're not planning on having him race that 125, they would just go to the 250F. He would get a stock one. So you're talking about you know a 250F in the 30 plus horsepower range, and they can manipulate the the fuel map too, and it's not going to be some rocket ship. They're going to give him a 250F that makes sense. It's not crazy fast. It's not over the top because he's in a transitional period where he's not going to probably race it for a few months anyway. And as his skill set progresses, depending on like his size and his skill range, and if he needs more power, they'll slowly start adding that in. You know, they don't have to go from stock to monster star Yamaha race engine. There are several steps in there that they can, they can add in. They can bump the power up with the fuel map they can add a cam, they can, you know, and then when the kid's ready, they can go to a semi-factory 250F engine. You know, a kid that's racing Loretta's probably isn't getting the same engine that Dylan Ferrandis raced this Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Championship on. I, I don't know that for a fact, but those engines are incredibly expensive to maintain. So I doubt that happens very often. They would have a super fast bike. They're just not going to have everything thrown at them the same way that the, the full race team at professional level is. So to answer your question, do I think it's too much? It would be right. If you were giving a, a rider coming off of racing a super mini at Loretta's, if you were giving him a full factory monster star Yamaha engine the next month, yes, I think that's too much. There there's absolutely no need for that. But I think the way that they do that and they steadily progress them up and they give them more power as needed and as they are prepared for it, I think that's fine. I think that's the way they should do it, and I think that's the way they they actually do it. Um, You know, they've been doing this for a long time, whether it's from 85s to 125s or whatever. Like, they know how this works, and they they steadily increase the power on hand as their skill set and as they are, their their ability grows, and and they're prepared to handle it. Uh, another qu- another question that Michael has, a side note, why wouldn't it work to make Supercross and Outdoors have a stock class and then a 450, 450 class is kind of open for uh, as much modifications as you want to make for a bike? I think the question there is that these OEMs want to keep progressing their 250, you know, their tech and, and the progression of the bike. That that's one question you get all the time is like, why don't we make the 250 class an entry level class and then make the 450 class the premier class? And but I don't think that the OEMs really view it that way because for one, the volume of their bike sales is in the 250s for the most part. They sell way more 250s than 450s, so they need to continue evolving the 250 and and the racing side of that helps them do that. Right? The more reliable they make their race engines in the 250 they start slowly putting that tech into production over time right they they have to make it to where the production bike you can put hundreds of hours of hours on it but that's theoretically what racing does is it develops your production bike over time and i don't think they want to have a 250 stock class as the premier 250 class because they sell so many bikes it's such a an important commercial aspect of racing is we need to sell 250s and we want to showcase who has the best 250s. So I think there's a big divergence there about, you know, and I get a lot of emails about that. We need to make entry level classes for 250 and then we need to make a modified class for 250. And then for like, there's a lot happening there. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think we're actually okay. Um, I had another question from another listener and, and guy I actually know that was, upset with how the 250 dynamic is and that 450 guys don't have a ride because the system's all screwed up. I don't, I don't necessarily buy into that. I think we're okay. Um, moving up to the 450 class is difficult and it's not always going to be easy. Look at MXGP. It's really tough. Like that class is the premier class and I'm okay with that. I, I think the 450 class should be difficult. And if you don't make it, I get it. Like it's, it's not going to be easy. And there, there's going to be a bar that you have to rise above. You know, we don't even have a, 
an age out, you know, where these guys in MX2, if they're 23, they have to move up. We don't have that. You know, like guys like J-Mart, Neymar, they continue to race Lucas Oil Pro Motocross in 250 class. So I'm okay with it for the most part. I don't love it. You know, I don't, I think the, the points rule, you know, pointing out of 250 Supercross could be adjusted, but I, I don't think it's any sort of tragedy the way our, our system of rules is. I think sometimes when we start adjusting rules to accommodate teams and riders, that's crazy talk, right? They, they were even talking about adjusting it again, going into 2021. I start to struggle with that because I don't like, I don't like rules that are made to help specific people or work around a specific situation. I don't think that's really fair, but I also think it's, uh, I think it's okay too. I, I think that our system is not bad. The biggest problem is we just need more money in the sport, right? It's just a difficult time. Uh, and, and we saw a, a real comeback in 2020. So I, I will add that caveat is if we continue to see year, years like 2020 for power sports, things will get a little bit better. Now, that doesn't mean that corporate America had a great 2020. That doesn't mean health-wise for our nation, 2020 was great. But on a power sports making money level for 2020, it was better than several years looking back. Uh, so let's hope that continues. Let's hope America heals, right? COVID-19 seems to be making a resurgence even today. But on a power sports level, getting people onto motorcycles and side-by-sides and quads and outdoors, spending money in our industry, it's been, it's been a positive for that. And, uh, I have to be really careful because people are like, if you, if you've been sick or you have family members that are sick or God forbid you had, you've lost a loved one. I understand how that sounds. It's terrible. No one wants that, but I'm just looking at it from a, a motorcycle economic side. There have been a lot more people riding motorcycles in 2020. Go to your local dealership, go see if they have any motorcycles in stock, any side-by-sides in stock. They probably don't. That's, that's the light that, you know, that's the world I live in. I talk to all these dealers and I have to go visit them. They don't even have anything to sell, which is great. They would, they would kill for that in years past. So silver lining, that's been really the positive of it. Good question. Thank you to Michael for that. Next question, Joseph Havel, Havel. He's, uh, he's jumping on the Pirelli scoop. So I'm hoping you live while well, he's in Green Bay, Wisconsin. So make sure you use that on a soft track, which Wisconsin has plenty of sand. So he's asking, does he need to change the gearing when he goes from one tire to the other? Is the overall height similar? I don't think you're going to need to change gearing, but that's always going to be a individual situation and individual decision. If you change one tooth, you can usually get away with the same chain. You can just adjust, you know, the, the length and, and your swing arm, just your chain adjustment. I don't really think there's a, a, a huge need, especially like if you're not racing professionally or whatever, it's not a big deal. The biggest thing is you're just going to see a difference in straight line traction and you're going to get better starts. It will be an adjustment going to that tire from like, you know, your side knob, there's going to be a little bit less, you know, when you're on the side of the tire, kind of like if you're cutting across the inside of a corner or you're trying to get traction in a low traction situation, you're going to notice a difference. It's not going to be, you're not going to feel as planted in that situation as you would say with a more of a medium, uh, terrain tire. But I can tell you when you come out of a berm and you dump the clutch, you're going to notice that that thing wants to go because it's grabbing so much dirt and it's propelling you forward with so much more traction than normal. Um, so I'm a big fan of that scoop tire, but you have to make sure that you're, you're mindful of the tracks you ride and also line choice too. Let's say that you're on a track that's, uh, let's, let's use spring Creek Millville, right? That's a track you've probably been to. If you live in green Bay, it's what five hours from you maybe, but that track has hard pack sections, right? Coming down some of those Hills, but it also has lots of sand. So let's say you were using a 32 mid soft the standard tire that I really like from Pirelli and you could kind of choose whatever line you like with that tire. It, it works in all situations. You could choose an inside rut that was pretty hard pack and it's going to hook up really well there in that situation. Or you could choose the outside berm that's pretty soft and sandy. And that 32 mid soft has really good straight line acceleration as well. 
So it's really versatile that way. And that's why I always like that tire. The scoop tire, if you're going that with that direction, you would want to utilize the outside berms more. You would want to rely on your momentum, carry a momentum, and then let that scoop tire do what it does best. Allow it to get that crazy good straight line drive and basically, you know, work with what that tire is giving you. Utilize its strengths. If you're going to go scoop tire, you need to make sure that you're using it for what it does best. You know, trying to tiptoe around the inside of a corner or square up corners or anything where you would, you're thinking hard pack traction, you're going to want to avoid that. That's rule number one. You have to make sure that you're utilizing riding techniques that align with the tire choice that you've made. And that, that goes hand in hand for pro riders too. If you're going to a track and you're, you know, let's say Alex Martin, who used that scoop tire most of the outdoor season, he has to think about that and like, okay, my line choice needs to make sure that you know, I chose the scoop tire. There's going to be give and take with it. Some tracks it's going to be, man, I'm really struggling with traction in some areas, but if I make sure I stay in the outside soft stuff and that loamy stuff, I don't have to worry about that as much. So it's the same thing. Just, uh, I love that you're going to try that scoop tire. Just make sure that you're changing your line choice and your riding technique to go along with that. I think also another factor there is try to ride a gear taller when you use that scoop tire. The one thing you want to avoid is high RPM and spinning that scoop tire up. And when I say spinning it up for newer listeners, that's high RPM where you're going to break traction and your RPM is going to go from, you know, 5,000 to 8,000 just from it spinning. Like it's not getting traction. It spins up really fast and it's going to break loose all over the place because the, the tire is not as accommodating to hard pack, right? So it's going to spin easier. So you need to make sure that you are either a gear taller or you, you could adjust your fuel map or you just go easier on, on the throttle. You know, you ride with that Kevin Wyndham type throttle precision where you're not just getting in there and and dumping the clutch. You have to actually think about what you're doing and, and realize that your tire is giving up some of that intermediate grip. And it, because when you get into the soft stuff, it's going to hook up much, much better and propel you forward much more quickly in that scenario. So lots to think about there. Um, but it is, it is a factor and, and these pro riders have to think about that stuff too, based off of which tire they have there. I want to thank Pirelli tires. We've been mentioning them in the questions here. So go check out Pirelli tires, go to at Pirelli MX Instagram, see all the winning they've been doing all over the globe. Tim Geiser won again this weekend pretty much what they do. They look to, uh, win MX two title and MXGP title again in 2020. I want to thank Plum Creek funding. Go look at the rates. You can get such a good deal right now on a new house. You can go refi. We're like all time highs of refi rates. As far as percentage of Americans getting refis, we've never been higher than now. And that's because the mortgage rates that you can refi for or buy for are all-time lows. Those those things are kind of inverse, just, you know, naturally as rates go down, more people jump in and that's your opportunity. It's the same for me. You can save a ton of money right now, long-term, like tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. So reach out to Plum Creek Funding, Zach Morris, 720-212-4685. Tell them I sent you and just ask some questions on what might be in the works for you, how you can save money long-term. I want to thank Blenzol. Now, once referred to as Super Blenzol, Ultra can be used as a two-stroke premix or an oil injector. It has the latest in anti-friction and extreme pressure additives that allow maximum horsepower while practically eliminating engine wear. This is one of the ones that's been around for the longest and Super Blenzol going back to two-stroke, you know, they use it as premix as well. So all of you two-stroke riders out there, check out Blenzol Ultra. You can go to at Blenzol on their Instagram, check out all the racing they've been involved with, Michael Wesse's successes, and they, they're they jumping into GNCCs and they have all this amateur program now. So it's been pretty great to watch the success of Blenzol Oils. Works Connection, go to worksconnection.com, go to at Works Connection on their Instagram. Pro Launch Start Device, still pulling hole shots. See, what I like about the Pro Launch Start device is it's super easy installation. 
They have a video on their Instagram that walks you through that entire process. And to me, it's just a much more reliable product and concept than some of their competition out there. Now, nothing wrong with the competition. That's fine. There are, there are some other competitive products out there. But to me, when you look at what the pros are using and why Monster Star Yamaha, why Factory Honda, why these guys, JGR Suzuki, why these guys all use the Works Connection Pro Launch Start Device, I think it, the answer starts to become self-evident. It works every time. It's reliable. It's been around for decades. And the thing just works. Now, whether it's just a basic starting device or whether it's this actual new pro launch start device, the concept that works connection has kind of built their, their brand behind is, is that's it's reliability, right? You want the same thing over and over. And that's really what starts come down to is predictability and consistency. If you go ask Michael Lessey, or you go ask any rider that gets whole shots all the time, Jeff Emig's another guy I've asked this to. How do you get good starts? You do the same motion over and over and over be, to where it just becomes instinct. It's kind of what Works Connection Pro Launch Start Device is. It's reliable and you can count on it. Tried and true products, Works Connection. I want to thank Premier Vapor Blasting. They were voted number one for your vapor blasting needs. What I want to tell you is go to their Instagram. I was looking this morning. I was There's this uh, set of foot pegs on there that is, seriously, it's for an 85 uh, Honda rebuild that, uh, a guy named Mark's doing. And these foot pegs are garbage in the, in the before picture, right? They look hammered. They're like rusty and dirty and, and just look beat to hell. And you, you're talking about a bike that's 35 years old. So that's likely, right? The bike's going to be hammered and you see how they, they brought these foot pegs back to life. To me, that's, just the proof right there of what they are capable of. So whether it's your race bike or whether it's a bike you're restoring, go to premier vapor blasting. You can go to at premier vapor blasting on their Instagram. And if you mention the industry seating podcast, you can get a 25% discount. So go check those guys out. 612 suspension. They're a full, sus- full service suspension company. They're affiliated with race ticks. So you get all of the same quality products and service that race tech would offer. I was looking on their Instagram this morning, which is at 612. And I saw these forks that 612 suspension had done Cerakote coatings on pretty awesome, right? If you want to look factory, but you're just an amateur racer, or even if it's just for your kid, but you want to show up and you want to have the trick of suspension on the starting line, reach out to Ronnie at 612 suspension, and you can go to their Instagram or you can go to 612suspension.com and get your bike dialed in. I want to thank fast foundry tech solutions company. And I was on their website this morning, which is fastfoundry.com, And just kind of looking through some of the, uh, the testimonials and things that they have done in the past and pretty cool. Like they're, they have such a wide range of applications. They can do everything from like warehouse pick modules. They can do, um, you know, virtual, uh, hosting. Like if they've, they've done event specific applications like NBA all-star games, um, they could do like, if you wanted to set up a virtual tour for your company, right. Which is, I think pretty applicable to coronavirus because a lot of companies are not allowing visitors in, right. You, you I know I was scheduled to go to a company in Michigan this year and, and visit their, they're a technological company and they work with the NFL. And I was basically told you're not allowed to come because of COVID and we can't have guests in. So something like that, where you would have you know, interactive 3d applications for your company to where you could feel like you were there without actually visiting. That's something that fast foundry could help you with as well. Uh, event conferences, all kinds of thing, right? If you wanted to set up uh, company parties, they do escape rooms, they do all kinds of things. So really, really versatile, reach out to fast foundry, ask for Robert and see how they can help you today. Uh, I, I like the fact, and I'm still learning about all the ways that they can help you. But I think if you go to the fastfoundry.com website and look through the applications, there's probably something that can work for you and your company. I also want to thank Risk Racing. So go check out all the wide array and they have such a, a very, just a broad range of products and things you're like, oh man, I didn't know they offered that, right? And and I've been talking to you, late, you guys lately about uh, that starting gate, but they have so many more cool things. The easy utility jugs, right? Three gallon, five gallon. Uh, everybody needs a utility jug, right? If you're, if you're riding a motorcycle, you need one. That's a pretty, pretty obvious thing. 
Use the lock and load pro. If you get sick of tie downs, most of you have probably had a bike fall over in the back of your truck. I know I have several times over the course of my life. Get that lock and load pro eliminate all that. It's way more efficient than any, you know, any other setup or dealing with tie downs. And then you have your bike cinched down and it starts to wear down your suspension, which 612 suspension would, would warn you against that. So check out the lock and load pro. And then the ripper automated roll-offs, which there's just a button on your bar. So it basically connects to your goggle setup and it can automate your roll-offs, right? So if you've got dirt, if you're riding in a muddy situation, you can have, it's called the ripper. This, this system is, and it's automated roll-offs, pretty awesome setup. Go to riskracing.com and check out all these items they have available. They have so many cool things, palm protectors and all these things. I, I guarantee you, you're going to learn something. If you head over and then check that out, use the code JT money, JT dollar sign to save yourself money at checkout. Thank you to Trevor and risk racing for coming on board. Last but not least, ProGlow, line of power sports cleaning solutions. Queen bikes just go faster. We know that, right? I can tell you when I was a kid, if a, somebody showed up and their bike looked like a million bucks on the starting line, I was intimidated, right? So make sure you're using ProGlow to get your bike dialed. When you, sh- when you roll up to the line, you want everybody to think you're factory. You need your bike to be clean for that to happen. They will get your bike looking sharp in no time. Try the degreaser for those greasy, grimy surfaces. And the Power Sports Wash can take off anything you want to throw at it. I used it, like I mentioned to you guys, I used it on my street bike because I wanted to see if it could get that street grime off of it, and it absolutely did. Use code MOTO15 to get 15% off your order at goproglow.com. Thank you to those guys for coming aboard. And then I should mention Fly Racing too. We're going to do a helmet giveaway. So thank you to all of them for being a part of the podcast. Another question from Brian with Geico sudden departure. He's mentioning how fragile the industry can be. And and that's true. You know, a big sponsor leaves. It's, it's going to be harmful to one specific team, of course. And we saw that team go away. One sponsor left and was a very large sponsor, of course, but the team folded because of it. Now he's at, he's saying that he sees too much dependent dependence on energy drinks, monster energy specifically, and I don't disagree. You know, if he's asking, what if, what if monster went away? What if energy drinks went away? What would happen? It wouldn't be good. You know, mentioning that energy drinks are driving the sport and the backbone of the sport right now is not an uncommon subject that's been going on for a long time. But the difference is, you know, I think it's come and gone. I I don't think it's always been energy drinks, right? There's always been these industries that come in and propel the sport. I remember when it was tobacco, remember camel supercross us tobacco. I remember us tobacco writing me checks for privateer funds. So I don't think energy drinks are going anywhere. If anything, energy drinks are expanding. Their marketing budgets are growing. Their, uh, popular, you know, say popularity, you know, uh, Pepsi just bought rockstar, Monsters on their own, Red Bulls on their own, and they're, you know, their stocks through the roof, their sales are through the roof. So for now, I think we're pretty safe. But yeah, maybe 20 years from now, maybe that's different. Maybe some other industry come in, comes in and sees a big opportunity for Moto because when you look at comparison costs, right, to sponsor Supercross teams and the sport for Supercross versus, say, NASCAR, it's a very different number. And I I think they see value in motocross and supercross for the amount of money they have to spend. They can come in and be a predominant player where their spend in NASCAR was just through the roof. And that's why you're seeing them exit out of NASCAR is it's just too expensive. Even at the discount they were getting when they got their deal, when it went from sprint or next or whatever, I got a sprint to monster, they got a significant discount. And even that they're looking at like, man, this is just too much money for what we're getting. So I think comparing it like that, I think Supercross looks like a bargain. So let's hope that these, these companies like Rockstar and Monster and Red Bull and all these guys stick around because we certainly need it. I think that's your point, Brian. And he's asking, could the sport survive without them? It would, it would take a big hit and rider salaries would go down and a lot of things would change, but Honda and Kawasaki and 
Yamaha and these, they still want to sell motorcycles. They still want to sell generators and all these things that they use Supercross as their advertising platform. It just would, yeah, it would be a substantial hit. It would hurt a lot of teams and a lot of riders. Uh, but I, for the moment on the short term, I think we're still safe. So we'll just have to see how that plays out long-term. Last question. Uh, I don't have this gentleman's name. It's coming from a, uh, a business email here. But with the strange scenery of coronavirus, he only went to one race. He was on a new bike, only rode it twice, and uh, yeah, he thought he he knew he should get to ride more before he went racing, but he just didn't, he wasn't able to, but he wanted to go race. So he's asking about, you know, I show up to the race in the morning, that's what we do, kind of show up last minute or whatever, and he really didn't feel comfortable on the bike yet because he just got it, but he wanted to go racing, and he's asking me if I ever had a scenario where I had to race, you know, for a living and I was on a bike I didn't feel comfortable with. And I kind of had to force it because that's what he was kind of doing. He was trying to play it super safe, but he's also racing, but he was nowhere near comfortable on this motorcycle yet. And yes, I have absolutely done that. I've been to races where I had to switch motorcycle brands for that event. Uh, I had to do it in Sweden in 2008. I rode a Suzuki for the first time ever, a Suzuki 450 for the first time ever at the event. Didn't go that well. I think I got like eighth. I never felt comfortable. I had the wrong tires. I had stock suspension. All I brought was handlebars. It, it was a pretty miserable experience overall because I was so frustrated that I wasn't competitive, but I also made a lot of money. So I knew on the front end that it was going to be tough. I knew I wasn't going to be as good as I should have been, but it was just a financial play. Another scenario, I went to Guatemala and at the end of 2001. And, and if those of you who have listened to this podcast and uh, maybe Pulp MX probably know that story with the drug lord and all that stuff. Well, I had to ride a Yamaha. I didn't have a Yamaha, so I jumped on it for the first time and also had to ride a Yamaha 250F in the 250 class. The, the Yamaha two-stroke, I was good. I won no problem. Like The bike was amazing for that O2 season. They had a really good bike. So it was an easy transition. I felt comfortable and I went out and won. The 250F, they had big time carburation issues back then. And that bike would not run worth a crap. And I remember calling Tim Ferry and all these people trying to get help for like, man, I, this bike cutting out and it's bogging and all these things. And they didn't really have any answers. They were having their own problems here in the USA because of the same thing. It was just very, very temperamental. And that, that, that is a situation where I was really scared. I ended up getting second, but I can tell you I was riding at about 80%. I probably would have won if the bike was good. I, I feel pretty confident saying I would have won, but every jump I hit, every landing of every double, triple, whatever, I was like, please don't bog, please don't bog, please don't bog. And I had to keep the RPMs like super high just to, you know, cause what would happen is if if I landed off a jump and it went all the way down to the bottom of the RPM range, it would have a bog when it wanted to pick back up. And that was, it's a, that's a really scary scenario, but it was reality. And you're riding a supercross track. So you're constantly jumping. Uh, so it wasn't fun, but I needed to go, I needed to get on the podium and go make money. That's just what the dynamic was when you're racing professionally. That's how you make your money. So being 22 years old, you kind of fight through, like you're not always making the wisest decisions. You know, at my age now, I'd probably be like, nah, screw that. I'm not riding that bike. That thing's a death trap. You know, not literally, but it could be. You land off a triple and go to jump into a rhythm section and that thing bogs. Yeah, you're in Guatemala. You hurt yourself and go to a third world country hospital. That's not going to go well. But being 22, you just kind of put that out of your mind and say, I got to, I got to make this happen. I got to get this done. So, different world back then, right? It's like you're, you don't think the same way you do at 40 that you do at 20. It's just a different thought process and priorities and you don't make as wise of decisions, but you're also, you need that brashness when you're young like that to be your best. Uh, so I got it done. I survived. I made it happen. Didn't get hurt. Um, got second place. So yeah, I've, I've definitely been there and he's basically asking, you know, did I make the right decision? Have you ever been through anything like that? Because what he did is he just cruised. He just rode around. He didn't do all the jumps. He tried to play it as safely as possible. 
but he didn't want to hurt himself either. You know, he, he still got top three in both motos, but he didn't even do the jumps. He was just like, okay, I'm not comfortable. I'm just going to go fast in the corners and be as safe as possible. I wasn't really able to do that so much. I was trying to be careful in Guatemala and Sweden on the Suzuki. I was trying as hard as I could. I just wasn't very fast. You know, I didn't have the bike dialed in. I really didn't know how it was going to react in certain scenarios, but racing at a professional level, you can't really be careful all the time. You kind of have to go for it or else you're just going to be, you know, those guys, the guys around you are too good. The level of competition is, is too high unless you are okay. Yeah. If you're Ricky Carmichael, yeah, you could probably back it down a little bit and, uh, and still win. But for me, I had to kind of go for it and it was either all in or all out. Uh, so thanks for the question there. And for the, um, for the Pirelli tires this week, um, I'm going to give them to Michael who had the question on the power advances and how it transitions from super minis to 125 to 250s. Cause that's something I had to kind of work on when I was moving up too, right? Jumping from an 80 and then getting on a big wheel, super mini to a 125, that was a pretty big shift. So I try to put myself in being that age and having a 250F going from a super mini to a 250F is a big, big jump. And I've, I've had lots of parents ask me, is that jump too big? I, if it was my child, I think I would go from super mini to 125 and then let them transition, learn the bike, learn the, you know, bigger wheels, more power. The suspension is significantly different. Allow them to learn that transition and then go to the 250F from there. Uh, that doesn't always happen. So I like the question. It's something I hadn't thought of in, in a very long time going back, taking me back to, uh, yeah, when I was a kid thinking I had been thinking about moving up, right. I remember jumping on CR 125 the first day and like, I was blown away at how the bike worked, how it would corner versus the 80, like the, the longer wheelbase and how, how much better it handled because of a longer wheelbase and, uh, you know, longer forks and more travel and all those things. Like it was just a completely different riding experience. I cannot even imagine what it would be like going from an 85 to a 250 F it's just gotta be like a light switch going on, but it's also, it's also, kind of sketchy. Like that's a lot of power to be handing, you know, a 14 year old that's used to an 85, like things happen really fast on a 250F compared to an 85. So I don't always think it's the best scenario. So great question, Michael, I will reach out to you for, uh, to see what new tires you want and where to send them and all that great stuff. Thank you to everybody for listening. Appreciate the questions. Keep them coming. As I said, I'm going to give away a formula CC helmet courtesy of fly racing. So get those questions in and we will talk to you next weekend. Still